0: And welcome to the Writer's Lock, your number one podcast for incredibly niche readings and discussions of Pokemon fanfictions from the Nuzlocke community. I'm your host, Rainy. Today's episode features a discussion on one of the biggest dilemmas facing any Pokemon fanfiction writer, the debate between realism and fantasy. We'll discuss the pros and cons of each approach, as well as some tips for writing in both styles. In addition, we'll also be featuring new chapters from each of our featured story locks. To start today's episode, let's return to Carousel. When we last left off, Yusin set off on his divinely inspired journey. His first stop on the path is Violet City.
1: Carousel, by Garish Garchomp Chapter 2 Gates of Dawn As this sprout tower is toying with fate, there are candles lit all about the first floor. It provides not only ambiance but an undercurrent of danger given the entire tower is made solely of wood. Yusin was already fidgety walking around town, Violet City was practically just a small equity, which meant everywhere he wandered carried a reminder of how far he had yet to go. The curved roofs are still shedding, that morning's rain, and even from inside the tower he can hear and feel how damp it is, as if he isn't weighed down enough. The monks on the ground floor regard him with stoic nods before extinguishing each candle. The various wisps of smoke and their too familiar scent bring Yusine to a halt. The tower combusts before him, with the smell of smog first to hit him. Flames climb the walls and leap at his sides as he approaches the stairs, his lungs seize as he tries to reach them, his breath already failing him like Suicune's did so many centuries ago, before she was a deity. He squeezes his eyes shut, rubbing his arms free of phantom flames, and when he looks again, Sprout Tower is back as unscathed as ever. The last remnants of smoke dissipate in the humid air as he rights himself. With a deep exhale, he proceeds upwards. He's greeted on the third floor by a face much fresher than his own pale visage. When Faulkner sees him, though, he lights up with a pearly smile. seen, welcome. The way Lugia's conduit glides across the room to extend his hands is enough to make Eusein stiffen. He represents the god of storms, damn it. Yet yeah, he can't be more relaxed if he tried. Eusein tries to keep a firm handshake, but it melts under Faulkner's vice grip. I've got a fantastic feeling about this. Faulkner continues, unruffled by the exult hopeful silence. And I can't just say that to everyone, or Lugia would have my hide. A creaky smile labors its way onto Eucine's face as he swallows and clears his throat quietly. Well, I'm glad you chose to tell me. Faulkner's warm gaze flickers, quick enough that Eucine nearly misses it. There's only one lantern on each wall for lighting, and he keeps finding himself drawn into the glints of the bulb behind him, reflected in Faulkner's cobalt eyes, as if he didn't already look so much livelier. I don't choose when I say it, is all he says in return. He motions behind him, to two modest cushions behind the main pillar holding Sprout Tower steady. They look as though they were taken off the street from a garish cyan sofa. Usain adjusts his cape as he sits down, trying his best to get his mind steady and his heart rate down. The time Faulkner takes to waltz over, luxuriously stretch his limbs, and give him a conspiratorial wink just means more time for his blood to pump far too quickly. He gives the tiniest of nods before squeezing his eyes shut walking out everything but his own breath. It doesn't always help to leave himself alone in a place where his thoughts could take full control. Somehow, though, he feels as eased as he can be. He can't tell if it's resignation or if there's something about Faulkner being there that helps. Just as he starts to rein himself in from the stratosphere, ready when you are comes from across the seating area. Any piece he'd carved out for himself shatters like crystals hurled against the wall. You see he opens his eyes. Faulkner's are glowing Eager embers just waiting to hurl themselves on a flame. With a sigh, he takes a moment to right himself. Ready as I can be. That blue glow spreads from his eyes, dripping upwards before hardening around them. None to skin but scales, royal blue scales that only intensify his gaze. His palms rise from his lap, both pointing towards the ceiling, and the further they rise, the more the wind crescendos. First a breeze, then a gust, then a smirk. Hold on to... Anything than a gale. Even though it arrives at the peak of a steady climb, it nearly knocks Eucene on his side at its climax. It deafens him to all but his own thoughts, and those are hard enough to rein in at zero miles per hour, much less a hundred. He manages a glance at Faulkner. With Lugia's glimmering eyes, he sits unperturbed in the center of it all. His shaggy hair covers half his face, his robes look like they'd want to escape his body, but he sits perfectly still and perfectly agonizingly straight. It's not that he's unaware of the wind, it's that he feels comfortable in it. With the tower swaying and Yusin cowering, Falcon just gives that same faint smirk as his master passes judgment. Judgment, the reason he's here. He wasn't brought here to flail about for a god's amusement, though he wouldn't doubt it being a benefit. But with his hands glued to the floor and his back curled, those thoughts of humiliation and failure fight through the wind to settle in again. He's already blown it, he thinks. He was in over his head when Suikun summoned him, it's all blowing over him now. What exults a Suicune shrinks like this before the wind? Rise, seen, he's instructed, by two voices at once. Faulkner's friendly lilt melts with Lugia's booming monotone, and the shrieking gales in the worst way. But it serves its purpose. It startles Yusine to as rapt attention as he can give. Stand? he asks. He's not the only one trembling under a god's might. Sprout Tower is lurching the pillar straining to uphold centuries of trials like this. The four lights shudder, and he follows suit. "'Yes, stands. comes the reply, almost as a laugh, almost lost to the howls pummeling Yusine. Those howls bring him back to the invocation, to Suicune, goddess of composure, bellowing out a single note that sent everything into sparks. With minimal effort, she could illuminate the skies in ways that would overwhelm every artist in Johto or turn a pool of muck into water clear enough to peer inside one's own soul. She could conceive a place more tranquil than any other being could dare to imagine, and she had dragged Yusine, of all people, into it. He swears he feels her guiding him. He feels her composure, the same composure she wants out of him now. The balance to rise, the poise to stay upright amidst the storm, and the faith that he can do it. And more than all that, he feels her trust in him to do it, if he can find the strength if he can find the stability, if he can find the peace. He looks at Faulkner again, still motionless. The lights stutter again, warm and cold, on and off, copper and cobalt, and this time Yusin grips his teeth and stays still rather than follow their lead. The gale continues its onslaught, yet it's not as oppressive. His hands swim in his vision as he finds his balance, and then he pushes off. He stumbles backwards, nearly slipping on the cushion before planting his weight as hard as he can. The floor trembles and shifts underfoot, wanting so badly to give out and let the wind win. Yusine holds his ground, though, loosening up with each breath, grasping at whatever piece he might reach, and taking every scrap he can get his teeth on. Before he can comprehend it all, he's standing straight before a beaming Faulkner. By the time he does, he realizes Faulkner is sitting on air. Excellent work, Yusine. It all began with doubt and fear, and now look at you. Yusin glances down at himself, his clothes stirring wildly in the wind while his bowtie clings on for dear life. You're level in the middle of a cyclone, my friend. Only those with the potential for exalthood can keep the storm from battering them into submission, when I craft it as such, of course. This time it is Lugia who smiles. Somehow, Yusin manages to match it. The winds die down, notch by notch, until stillness is restored. After what just transpired, the serenity almost feels tense. Only the hint of dripping water outside lets Yusine preserve the tranquility he's so carefully built up now. When Faulkner's feet touch the ground again, as elegantly as Suicune trods upon water, Yusine is still trying to commit this feeling to memory. He cannot take any peace he attains for granted, not at this point. You're free to move on, Faulkner says, striding forward for another handshake. It's the prospect of being crushed in his talons that finally rests the near-eerie calm from Yusine's grip, but he smiles all the same. Faulkner brandishes a comb from his free hand and offers it up. Yusine nods in thanks, eagerly taking it to do what he can to right his hair again. There are no mirrors, but he's groomed it often enough that the routine's well-worn into muscle memory. Faulkner stands before him, waiting, clasping and unclasping his hands before finally relenting and straightening Yusine's attire. They pause for a second as their eyes lock, both taking in the unfamiliar spark of the others before finishing up their business. Appreciate it, Eusine says, handing the comb back after that pause. Of course. A word of advice, though, before you depart. Even though Faulkner's gaze is less than stern, Eusine falters. He had to have seen something wrong there, he thinks. Some fatal flaw that will keep him from reaching the end. And found so soon, too. Uh, go ahead? He stammers. Faulkner rests a hand on his counterpart's shoulder, keeping up the same smile he's worn almost the entire time. Somehow, unlike most, his touch loosens him up rather than tightens him, comforts rather than invades. It's enough to make you see him lean a little bit closer, and for him to put a little more stock into what's about to come out. Have faith, Faulkner says. Not in the gods, as you have plenty of that already. Have faith in yourself as well. Even just clinging to a shred of faith in the midst of a hurricane can see through to the other side. You're plenty strong enough for that. You've seen stares and stares and finally nods. Easier said than done, especially in the moment, but if today is anything to go by, it's surely possible. Swing by if you need anything else, or if you just need a break, Faulkner says, pulling back now. He spares him another handshake, settling for a wave. You've seen smiles, waving back for a beat too long before taking his leave. Before he departs town, he stops to take in the sight of Sprout Tower under the impending sunset. From where he stands, it looks like nothing happened in there, that there was no hurricane, no tests to speak of. Amidst a trial from a god, it swayed and shook, but never came close to breaking. Before he goes to sleep that night, Yusin says a prayer, asking for that same brand of strength.
0: And so, with Lugia's blessing, Yusin presses on. We'll return to the story next time to see where Yusin's journey leads him next. And now, it's time for a word from our sponsor. Hey, are you a more peko in hangry mode? Try Rage Candy Bar. Candy Bar's for people that want to feel... Gratuitous amounts of serenity. Sound the alarm! You're You're gonna gonna feel... Uncomfortably relaxed. What's, What's that you want? you want? Strawberry? How about raspberry? Want a more relaxing pace in your life? Rage candy bar is made with slow pokes. Real, Real slow, slow pokes.
2: You'll be so laid back, you could outsleep a snorlax.
0: Buy today for only $19.99 dollars. Rage Candy Bar sink is not responsible for any hangry mode-related destruction property damage or lost friendships only at participating retailers while supplies last. Now we move on to our next story lock, Healing Wish. Last time, Blue made the decision to take a well-earned vacation away from the stresses of his position. Let's see how that turns out for him.
3: Healing Wish by Simply Unknown Chapter 1 The Arrival Plane rides were never fun. But they only got worse when they stretched into the double digits. Gritting his teeth, Blue checked his watch once more. Taking into account time differences, they'd be landing in ANOVA in approximately 6 hours and 37 minutes. Over halfway there and Blue was already going a bit insane. He'd finished the book he'd brought with him while waiting to board, his laptop battery was practically dead, and the in flight movie about a boy dealing with abusive parents wasn't exactly what he wanted to watch right now. The only thing he could do was sleep, but while his body was more than willing, his mind just wouldn't stop whirling. It had been three days since Lance had delivered the news, and his trip had come together shockingly quickly. Apparently, Blue had too many vacation days saved up. Agatha had sent him off at check-in with a bone-crushing hug and a promise to look after his team while Blue was in Unova. He had considered leaving them with Daisy, but his sister didn't deserve to watch his Pokemon while he was gone for who knows how long. The ticket had been one way, so Blue had no clue when he'd be returning to Kanto. And he didn't want his grandfather to know that he'd left. At least not yet. What am I doing? Blue asked himself for the hundredth time since this all started. Part of him just wanted to turn around and head back to Kano, where he could bury himself in work and battles and literally anything else that silenced his churning thoughts. If he wasn't busy, they tended to creep in. Thoughts like, you aren't working hard enough. Or, you would have won that battle if you were a better trainer. Or worst of all, maybe this will make Gramps proud of me. Something that he'd never wanted to accept appeared to be impossible, at least for Blue. A loud snore split the air and jerked Blue out of his thoughts. He glared at the man sitting next to him who had been peacefully dreaming under a sleep mask since the plane had taken off. His head had fallen onto Blue's shoulder a couple of times, but he'd been easily shaken off, though the noise wasn't doing much to help Blue's attempts to sleep. Sighing through his nose, Blue once again adjusted the gifted pillow against the side of the plane and closed his eyes. Whether it was pure exhaustion or the change in position, Blue found himself drifting off. Back to when things were simpler, easier, when he still had a chance. Glancing at the lab clock, Blue impatiently paced back and forth. Today was the day. He was 10 years old and Gramps had promised that he was going to give him a Pokémon. And not just any Pokémon either, but one of the rarest Pokémon in Kanto, an Eevee. Blue technically wasn't supposed to know about this, but Daisy had snuck the small Pokémon out of the lab every so often so that he and Blue could play together. Blue already had the perfect nickname picked out, and together they would become Champions of Kanto. The door to the lab opened and Blue eagerly whirled around. There you are, Gramps! I was... His voice trailed off as he spotted Red trailing in after his grandfather, a slightly blank look on his face. Waiting? Professor Oak blinked a few times as if surprised to see his grandson there. Blue? Why are you here? You... Blue's hands twisted into the messenger bag that he'd already packed. You said you would give me a Pokémon today. Oak sighed and pressed a hand to his temples. I said for you to come by later. Ah, whatever. Just wait there. He turned to beam at Red, who had been standing awkwardly near a wall. Look, Red, you see that Pokéball on the table? You may have it. Go on, take it. What? Blue's jaw dropped as Red's face transformed into one of pure glee. "'Hey, Gramps, what about me? You promised that—' "'Be patient, Blue,' Oak scolded with a familiar scowl on his face. "'I'll give you one later.' Red paused for a second, nervously glancing from Blue to Oak before reaching out for the ball on the table that held the Eevee, that held Blue's shadow. In a blind panic, Blue rushed forwards and shoved Red aside, knocking him to the floor. He snatched the Pokeball and hugged it tightly to his chest so that no one could take it. Blue, what are you doing? No, Blue argued. You promised me a Pokemon before Red and I want this one. Only this one. Tears welled up in his eyes as he fought not to quiver under his grandfather's glare. Blue wasn't going to back down this time. If he did, he'd lose Shadow for good. After a few minutes, Oak sighed and rubbed his temples. Oh, all right then, that Pokémon is yours. I was going to give you one anyway. He looked over to Red, who had yet to get to his feet. Red, come over here. You can have the Pikachu I caught earlier. It's not quite tame yet, but that shouldn't be a problem for you. As Red walked over to get his own starter, Blue let out the fluffy Eevee. Hey, Shadow, we're partners now, Blue whispered. A normal type glanced up, let out a delighted squeal at the sight of his favorite boy, and leapt into his arms to cover his face and licks. Laughing, Blue cuddled Shadow against his chest as Red attempted to get to know the Pikachu. Shadow yipped and narrowed his eyes at the yellow mouse Pokémon. You wanna fight? Blue asked, earning a determined nod from the Pokémon. He smoked and let Shadow drop to the floor in a battle-ready crouch. Hey, Red, let's check out our Pokémon. Come on, I'll take you on. Hey, kid. An unfamiliar voice and a jabbing into his shoulder pulled Blue out of his dreams. Or were they just memories? He blinked blearily up at his seat partner, who pointed out the window. We'll be landing in about ten minutes, so I thought I should wake you up. Blue glanced out the window to see they were rapidly approaching the ground. Thanks, he mumbled as he stiffly pushed himself off the wall and rubbed a hand over his eyes. No problem, the man beamed before it turned into a confused frown. Do I know you from somewhere? You look kind of familiar. Instantly, Blue tensed. The whole point of this vacation was not to be recognized. "Just have one of those faces," the gym leader muttered, keeping his gaze focused on the window. Thankfully, the man let it go out of respect or lack of interest. Either way, it kept Blue stiff and awkward in his seat until the plane touched down. Hoisting his old messenger bag onto his shoulder, Blue kept his head down and hurried off of the plane into the airport as quickly as he could. Agatha had said there would be someone waiting for him. "Oh, there you are!" A tall, unfamiliar woman waved from near the baggage claim, holding a sign that read Agatha's Vacationer. At least it's not my real name, Blue thought as he made his way over to her. Her tawny hair was done up in an odd combination of a ponytail and a bun, all piled atop her head, and her green eyes looked friendly. She was dressed in a long white lab coat over a white top and a mid-length green skirt. My name is Professor Araragi. Welcome to Inova! Blue blinked a few times, mentally going over his conversations with Agatha before he left Kanto. Agatha used male pronouns when talking about you, he stated cautiously. Araragi laughed, a warm sound that almost reminded him of Daisy. She was probably referring to my father, who was also Dr. Araragi. They're old friends and usually get together once a year for reminiscing in a Pokemon battle that leaves a new crater somewhere. Sounds about right, Blue muttered, earning him another laugh. Doesn't it, though? The baggage claim siren began wailing, signaling that bags were about to start coming out. Araragi gestured to the conveyor belt that had started moving. You have any bags we need to wait for, or shall we get going? No, this is it. Beaming, Araragi led the way to her car, keeping up a steady stream of chatter that jumped from his flight... To Nova tourist spots, to the battles between her father and Agatha. I'm not sure how much sleep you got on the flight, so feel free to take a nap while we drive. Or if you want something to eat or some coffee, we can stop by a drive-through somewhere. My interns are looking after the lab and aren't expecting us until nine. This statement made Blue jolt. Your interns know about me. Adadagi nodded in clear confusion at his reaction, and Blue hastened to explain. I was hoping, this was supposed to be a real vacation, and if people know who I am, then... Ah, I see. Her eyes cleared and she nodded in understanding. They know that you're a visitor from Kanto and that an old family friend asked me to look after you, but I didn't give them your name. That being said, they probably will recognize you. Great. Blue groaned as he leaned forward and buried his face in his hands. I told Agatha that this would happen. It will probably only be them, though, Araragi added thoughtfully as she started the car. Blue looked up in clear bafflement. The main reason they know who you are is because of the research papers that you've turned in, and the majority of Renova don't read those. You... you've read my work? Blue blinked a few times in sincere shock. Yours and your grandfather's, yes, Adaragi nodded. I was very impressed with the paper on the differences between Kanto's two Nidoran populations and what caused them to split into two distinct species. My research focuses the origin of Pokémon, you see? Blue nodded numbly. His grandfather had never told him the results of his research after he'd sent it in. Part of him had assumed it had been trashed. If you have the time, I'd love to pick your brain on a few topics, but only if you want to. It's your vacation, after all. Plenty of time for work later. Grinning, Araragi reached over and started fiddling with the radio. Any preferences? Forty minutes and one breakfast sandwich later, Blue was feeling more like a normal person than an exhaustion zombie. Brushing the crumbs off of his shirt, he looked out of the window at the small white building they were driving to. "'Here we are, home sweet home,' the Pokémon professor beamed as she parked. "'They'll be waiting for us, so be ready for more than a few questions.' "'Nothing I haven't heard before,' Blue muttered as he stepped out of the car. "'Novema Town was small, open, and airy. It reminded him a lot of Pallet Town, and he wasn't sure if the comparison made him homesick or uncomfortable. Thankfully, he didn't have long to dwell on it as Araragi practically frog-marched him to the door and flung it open. Blinking at the sight, Blue commented dryly, Well, I do have more than a few questions. Lying in the middle of the floor with his ass in the air was a young man dressed in blue, snoring away with his glasses cocked to one side. It looked incredibly uncomfortable. At a table sat an individual with long brown hair pulled into a ponytail with their head turned away from the door. Blue assumed they were asleep as well. A blonde girl with a long white skirt and a big green hat was sitting in a corner, scribbling notes into a notepad. She glanced up and beamed. "'Oh, Professor Adaragi! Welcome back!' Belle, why are Sharon and Toko asleep here rather than on any of the very comfortable couches we have? Adaragi questioned as she pushed past Blue. We were running tests to see whether remaining stationary or moving around would affect how fast the move yawn made people fall asleep, Belle explained. Toko was sitting at the table and Sharon was jogging around the room before the yawn kicked in. Oddly enough... Yon actually worked more quickly when they were standing still rather than sitting or moving. Almost 12% faster for both of them. Really? Blue bit back a snicker at the look of excitement on the professor's face. The desire for scientific discovery ran hot within Pokémon professors, it seemed. I wish you'd waited for me to get back. I would have liked to see this. Sorry, Professor. Belle apologized before spotting Blue. Her eyes widened. "'Oh my god, you're Blue Oak! "'Your paper on the effects of stress "'causing occasional premature evolutions in Pokémon was amazing!' "'She hopped to her feet and sped over to him, stars in her eyes. "'Blue flinched and backed away. "'Oh, you must have so many ideas about Pokémon and... "'That's very nice and all, but I'm not here for that,' "'Blue protested, feeling like a sample under a microscope. "'Ow!' The boy lying on the floor had apparently woken up and had a bad crick in his neck for his troubles. Fixing his glasses, he glanced around the room before spotting Belle and in Blue. Instantly, he strode forward and started pumping Blue's hand. My name is Sharon and it's wonderful to meet one of Kanto's youngest champions and gym leaders. Welcome to Renova. I do hope that you can find the time to go over some battle strategies with me. Grimacing, Blue jerked his hand free. This was exactly what he was trying to avoid. Belle, Sharon, what are you two doing? The pair of interns blinked at the new voice, and Blue's gaze was drawn to the girl who had been sleeping on the table earlier. She was clearly awake now, watching the trio with cool, blue gray eyes. Do you really need to jump, the guy? Toko, do you not know who this is? Sharon demanded, pointing a finger at Blue who had to fight the urge to slap it away. This is... Were you not listening to the professor yesterday? Toko interrupted as she pushed herself back from the table. He's here on vacation, which means he's probably here to relax. I don't know about you, but being harassed by people I don't know isn't my idea of relaxing. She gave a light shrug. Just a thought. Grimacing, Sharon and Belle backed away with their heads bowed. My apologies for my rude behaviour. Yeah, sorry. It's fine, Blue answered, catching Toko's eye quickly. Thanks. She smiled and nodded back. Well, that settles things. Blinking, everyone turned to see Professor Araragi sitting on a chair, holding a file in her hands. I was going to see which one you would prefer to travel with, but I believe Toko would be the best option, Blue. Travel? Me? Blue and Toko answered in unison. Of course. You didn't bring your Pokémon with you, Blue, so you'll need to travel with someone through Nova, and since you three were planning to leave on your journey soon, it makes sense for him to tag along with one of you. A journey? At their age? Blue shook his head as Sharon took a step forward. Pardon me, professor, but why not me or Belle? Because you would badger him about his training skills and Bell would badger him about his research. She grinned at the guilty looks on her intern's faces. Toko was the only one trying to respect him, so it seems like the healthiest decision. Ataragi pointed at Blue. Though I would advise using an alias of some kind. Using your real name is just asking to be recognized. I guess. Blue mumbled as he glanced at Toko, who was chewing her lip. Is this all right with you? She shrugged. I guess, but you should know I'm not doing the gym challenge or anything. I'm looking for someone, so you aren't likely to get any gym battles out of me. My normal life is gym battles, Blue countered. I'm just looking for some time away from it all. Toko nodded. Got a name in mind? Blue pondered for a few seconds. I think I'll use Jay. Middle name and all. Blue was surprised at the quick grin that appeared on her face as Toko offered a hand. He returned the smile with one of his own as he took it to shake. Then welcome to Renova, Jay.
0: This should certainly be an interesting vacation. Tune into our next episode to see how Jay and Toko get on. G'day, it's your host Rainey here with a discussion segment. We've got three guests today, so I'm going to say each person's name and they can introduce themselves. So, Clock, you're up first.
4: Hello, I'm Clockenstein. I am, well, I guess a writer, but (laughs) more generally, I am the writer of previously Silicon Lines, a cyberpunk Platinum Storylock, and then Season Child, a realist Black and White Storylock, and then, most recently, The Color of Heaven, a fantasy Platinum Storylock
2: again.
0: Mm. Awesome. Uh, Aurea.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Aurea. I've been on the forums for a few years. I'm the author of Impulse, a Diamond Storylock, and Dandelion, a Storylock of S.H.I.E.L.D. Awesome. And lastly, we've got
0: Herbaror.
5: Hello. I am Herbaror, most often known as Herb. I'm the author of All That We Are, my uh, run of Blaze Black, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and commit to this now. By the time this episode comes out, I will have posted the first chapter of The Quiet
4: Dark, which will be of Renegade Platinum.
1: I'm going to to that one.
4: <laughs> Thank you for bringing that one into existence. I'm proud of you. <laughs> it's going to happen.
0: All right, thanks for joining me. So we're going to be talking about portraying Pokemon today. I know you're all excited for that one. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, we're going to talk about just how complicated that can end up being. So let's get on to our first question. What do you think are the differences between a fantasy Pokemon and a realistic Pokemon? (laughs) So, Erb, you want to go first? Sure.
5: So when I think about like a fantasy Pokemon, I think of where like the game starts out. You've just got a bunch of these incredible and, you know, just kind of crazy creatures doing a wide variety of awesome things because, yeah, there's a whole lot of freedom and places that you can take it from that point because it, it just starts off from a, okay, this is cool. This is happening. And I think that you know, that's kind of where it begins. You can have talking Pokemon from there, you can fly on the backs of tiny little birds, and you can have all kinds of fantastic scenarios.
0: Whereas... I'm just imagining flying on the backs of the Pokemon with oh, oh, yeah. their tiny birds. Or just,
5: you know, <laughs> grab onto one of Zubats' little little leg things and just sort of hang on for your life. <laughs> oh, you
3: or mean you get like two Zubats uh, and one foot on you're each.
5: laughing at, woohoo, tiny Pidgey from Super Effective. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Remember that. So... By contrast, I think that a realistic take on Pokémon is one where you try and take characteristics and behaviors and anatomy of real-life creatures and try to bring them into your portrayal. Admittedly, a lot of how I think about this is uh, in terms of visual design because I draw kind of realistic takes on Pokémon pretty frequently. Uh, So I think a lot about anatomy and proportions, like for drawing a Luxray, I will pull up a a lion as a reference image for how to structure it and build a design around that. Whereas I think when you're writing, I think that behaviors really come into play a lot more.
0: Yeah, because I think with realistic Pokemon, we're just limited to real life experiences with animals. (laughs) But fantasy, we can really go anywhere with that.
4: (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to separate ourselves from that, isn't it?
0: Mm -hmm. So, Clock, you have an answer as well?
4: (laughs) Yeah, sure. I actually love that Herb really went into visual design because I really want to get mechanical here. I think fantasy, when you talk about fantasy Pokémon, you start basically at the official art itself. Ken Sugimori's style is intentionally low on physical detail. It's really hard to find scales even under huge dragons. It's really hard to find fur past the tufts at the ends of a rock rough tail. And the Pokémon anime and the manga, they follow that lead. They're doing this so you're not thinking about the details. Fantasy, on some fundamental level, is reliant on our suspension of disbelief. The less you're thinking about those details, or rather, the more the creators are misdirecting you from the details, the better. Now realism with Pokémon, that starts because we've got people who are intentionally diving into these questions, starting to make you uncomfortable with what you know, the ones you're not supposed to be thinking of. The questions like, say, what minerals are a Tyranitar made of? Well, the Pokédex entry will say, Larvita diets are made of mountains, right? So, I guess a pyranitor would be made of quartz, feldspar, something like that, metamorphic rocks. Or, if you want to get jokey, I guess, what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? <laughs> <laughs>
0: African or <laughs> European? <laughs> <laughs>
4: But yeah, once you start having to ask these questions, once you start questioning the official narrative of the, of the whole Pokemon world, you're pulling at the threads of the entire canvas, and you're eventually going to bring it down. And once you do that, you realize that you've created a huge mess, and you're going to have to pick it all up back yourself. When you do realistic Pokemon, it's always going to be a huge undertaking, but it's always, always going to be a great subversion.
0: Those are some really good thoughts.
4: Yeah, I, I really like that you bring up stuff like composition of
5: Tyranitar. I think that's a really cool idea. Although I will I will also say that part of the reason why you don't draw scales when you're doing cartoons is because drawing scales is a pain in the
4: ass. <laughs> 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 I can imagine. But I think it's a combination of those things. You also don't want them to look at it, but it's also just convenient for you. Yeah.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Aurea. Yeah. Yeah. Clock. I love that you brought up suspension of disbelief. I think that's important in any kind of fantasy writing, which Pokemon by nature is very fantastical. So when I personally think of fantasy Pokemon, I tend to think of terms of those who are speaking in the story and communicating directly with their trainers and each other, because that's the area where I have the most difficulty personally with that suspension of disbelief. So for me, realistic Pokemon are those that are treated as more animalistic, like you all were mentioning. They might have varying degrees of intelligence or perception, but that communication barrier is still present between them and their trainers. And I think the big difference between the two for me lies in the idea that When you have Pokémon that speak, you have this powerful creature that can think and communicate, and it makes me wonder what separates them from human characters. When you have that level of cognitive thought, a lot of times in story they're treated as their own characters with motivations and ambitions and opinions and a viewpoint that's shaped by their experiences just like people. And so I think we've got a lot of great examples on the forum of both methods of both fantasy and realistic portrayals of Pokemon. And I think a lot of it boils down to the structure and the tone of the story that you're wanting to tell to determine which one works best, because I can, again, I can think of a lot of different examples of both. So I think you guys brought up some really good points and some other factors that determine what level of fantasy or realistic Pokemon are, but I think there is always going to be that baseline just because of the subject matter. And so usually... For me, that's where I kind of draw the line in the sand is whether or not they communicate with the trainers that they're with.
4: Honestly, I love that you uh, mentioned that when a fantasy Pokemon speaks, it has the, shall we say, being treated as an, sort of as an equal with the human characters. Yes. Yeah. I hate to get sort of into like animal rights talk here, but <laughs> I, I'm reminded of an essay where it says, in our modern society, we have kind of a schizoid quality to our relationship with animals. That's kind of what happens when you inject fantasy Pokemon who can talk. -hmm. On one hand, you can talk with them, and then on the other hand, you're still confining them in balls. That (laughs) happens a lot.
2: Yeah. And I think uh, I think a lot of Univa runs do a really good job of addressing that, or at least starting to kind of breach the subject. But it is something that I've always wondered about. Because I mean, even the way that if you look in real life, if we're trying to draw comparisons there, the way that we interact with people and the way that we view people and the way that we view and interact with our pets, you know, I love my dog more than anything in the world. But I also know that she doesn't have dreams and ambitions, she just wants to eat and take naps. And I respect her for that. (laughs) But you know, I think there's an inherent tragedy in losing a person's that had dreams they had things that they wanted to work on and that they wanted to aspire to versus an animal that maybe didn't understand on that level when you're talking about a nuzlocke specifically i mean that's what draws us all in right is not knowing who lives or dies so i think it is an important subject to bring up and consider
0: yeah so let's move on to our next question what are the challenges involved with writing realistic pokemon um if i can go first all right absolutely all right for me it's the research so uh, we don't know how many animals act in the wild and it's really hard to understand why many animals do what they do so just like what you said before i think with pokemon especially we try to assign a lot of human-like traits to them to make them easier to understand and relate to and also make the loss of them a lot greater or otherwise we just like make them like a cat or a dog like most cartoons do (laughs) but um (laughs) Because, yeah, I'll tell you what, though, it's really hard to ride a giant frog, you know, acting realistically when it's also a, a, um, a highly trained ninja.
4: Not to mention, <laughs> yeah, that's got some huge implications in itself. I mean, if a Greninja is a highly trained ninja, then that means it's got an entire society of highly trained ninja frogs teaching it how to be a highly trained ninja.
0: Yeah, and also, why does it, being a ninja, what does that achieve for it, like, with getting food and also, you know, living its life?
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A... I'm
2: still hung up on the tongue. <laughs>
4: The Tongue Scarf, yeah. The Tongue
2: Scarf is what gets me. I can't even get into all that other philosophical stuff. It's got to be the Tongue Scarf for me. (laughs) What is the point of the Tongue Scarf?
5: (laughs) To what sort of evolutionary pressures could have led to
4: that? Not interfacing with frozen light poles, maybe.
0: (laughs) Clock, would you like to go first now that I've got my bit?
4: (laughs) So yeah, I did mention, like I said, those Greninja training societies. But (laughs) more seriously... The ecosystem around these Pokemon's a huge problem. So, obviously, Pokemon aren't going to exist in a vacuum. You have one Greninja, that's not going to exist in a vacuum where, like, it's just the only ninja in existence. Now, if you don't alter the essential setting of your run much, by which I mean, like, Unova or Kalos, it's just same as it is in-game, you're not gonna run into much trouble since Game Freak has neatly put into habitats every single Pokemon that might exist in a region. But a lot of us will like to get creative or alter the setting a lot. So for example, I want to take one of my runs. I decided that Unova was basically going to be, you know, a secluded rural Canadian town. So, Canada. Immediately. I'm looking at a temperate climate. Obviously, I'm going to go through some harsh winters if I'm in the uh, Ontario or... Manitoba regions, and obviously that's going to rule out a lot of the uh, Pokemon in the Unova Pokedex. You don't have desert creatures like Krokorok, and you're also definitely not going to have any uh, Mask out there unless, say, the traveling circus comes to town, or something like that. And that's just one aspect, and you've got to research a lot of that. Now on research, just in general, I really like what Detective Pikachu, you know, the movie, did here. They hired this artist who made it a serious pastime to draw a realistic Pokemon. He wrote down their habits, their ecosystem, he to sugemorifies their art style, he gives us a proper sense of what their scales or their fur look like, so on, stuff like that. And it made for a really good depiction of what they actually look like on the real screen with live-action actors and so on. And then there's websites like, you know, the world of Pokémon. These are great starting points if you really just want to get an idea of what makes a realistic portrayal work, or how you can get past the suspension of disbelief
0: mirroring them with um, real life animals is a really good idea and I know um I actually had Bulbasaur's and I compared them to cane toads and cane toads are known to basically eat anything that will fit in their mouth (laughs) (laughs) so at one stage the character runs into a um, a Bulbasaur that's choking on a Pichu
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh no oh
3: that's incredible
0: That's my idea of how realism would work.
4: The worst (laughs) part of a Bulbasaur is that it's got the vines to help it reach things that a Cane Toad can't.
5: (laughs) Oh no! Yes. (laughs) Eat hungry! (laughs) Uh. I do really like what you said about the Detective Pikachu movie, because I think that they did a really great job of, yeah, taking these Pokemon that have, you know, very little of the detail and taking them and putting them into a real looking space while giving you a good idea of the texture and weight of them, which is really, really great.
0: Yeah, because we even had um, instances of where Pokemon were camouflaged in nature itself.
2: And that's what it would realistically be like, basically. Mm -hmm. They made them really unsettling, too, which I feel like if we were actually, everyone thinks that it'd be fun to live in the Pokemon world. But if they were realistic and I was plunked in there, I would probably be terrified of Pokemon on some level just because, holy cow, I mean.
4: You don't know if whoever you're talking to is a ditto or not. (laughs)
0: personally i found mr mime was terrifying Uh,
5: yes mr mime was always terrifying
2: (laughs) that's true too
5: (laughs) let's be real
2: they made it somehow more scary
5: i've said it once i will say it again and again ditto is a horror monster
2: it is it definitely is (laughs) all right or for me I think the biggest challenge that I faced writing realistic Pokemon in my own runs has boiled down to figuring out what's going to make the reader care about them. Um, We talked about this a little bit earlier, but really trying to get to the core of how can I keep them from fading into the background and make sure that people relate to them or want to see them succeed and that they aren't just a prop for my human protagonist to move through the story. And so, you know, we talked about earlier, one of the main draws of Nuzlocks is not knowing who lives or dies, but if you don't care about the characters that are involved in those stakes, then it's not going to have as big of an impact. So I think the challenge is to find ways to give Pokemon personality without speech, which means leaning hard into that nonverbal communication and those behaviors that you all were mentioning earlier and doing that thorough research to be able to differentiate between them so they don't all just act like this one animal. They don't all have dog-like characteristics or cat-like characteristics. And I think sometimes that means getting creative, especially with Pokemon that don't have an animal counterpart to study. So sure, I can research lions and draw from my experience with my own cats to write about my protagonist's Luxray. And I can base her Ponyta entirely on the horse that I owned as a kid, and no one will know the difference. But I really struggled with how to get her Drifloon specifically to convey emotion. And I don't think it has to be anything groundbreaking. So just for example, using my own run, for Willow the Drifloon, I manipulated her inflation levels to align with her feelings because I mean, she's a sentient balloon. What more can I really do with that? (laughs) And she was naturally a, a timid Pokemon. That's just kind of how I envisioned her personality. So I would have her literally shrink away from things that she was uncertain about or deflate whenever she was being rebuffed by her trainer, who is not exactly the most inviting person to work with. But I didn't have like a list of characteristics or traits or even I didn't even go as deep as the ecosystem and the environment that Drifloon would have hailed from because I just didn't want to get bogged down in those details. But I think understanding how she would interact with the world around her and how that would impact her own body language added some depth to her interactions with my protagonist, and ultimately made people care about her in the end.
4: Really, I love that you did say you didn't really want to get bogged down in these details <laughs> and that you... <laughs> No, it's fine. And you also said you wanted to keep Pokemon from fading to the background. Because I think that really highlights just how different the priorities of a lot of writers can be.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Some of us, I think, like to actually keep the focus on the human characters and let the Pokemon stay in the background, I think.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: In, a, in a realistic world, some of them might really just be our companions, like the pets we have our dogs or cats, or the moles or drill who occasionally ruin our garden. <laughs> yeah and then on the other hand you've got realistic pokemon who have to go on a journey and grow alongside characters who have a lot of growing up to do on their own and i think that's great to have that contrast between just these takes especially i love that you mentioned that it doesn't have to be really complicated because i do agree with how you would portray a Drifloon. i think that despite what the pokedex might say about them spiriting away children in truth they're actually just really passive and gentle pokemon
2: I think having the freedom to play with those Pokédex entries and and it's really cool to dive into the research, but I do think, you know, it's also okay to write realistic Pokémon and not focus on all those different areas. You don't have to write your own, you know, biology textbook on (laughs) what's involved in in realistic Pokémon behavior. I think you can borrow pieces of it and just kind of build something that's your own and and that fits the tone of the run that you're trying to write.
4: Exactly. It's all about your priorities.
2: Absolutely. All right. Uh, Uh.
5: Aria, I'm really glad that you're bringing to the table this talking about how doing realistic things really affects the way that you tell the story and the way that you portray characters, because that's not what I have to offer here. (laughs) I habitually go on research journeys because I can't stop myself. (laughs) I understand. Yeah. Like, for example, once I was going to write a scene where the trainer flies on the back of his Sturaptor. Which, you know, all right, cool. And then I got thinking, hey, how big would a bird actually have to be to pull that off? The answer to that is that it'd have to be about twice as heavy as as the trainer, and with the wingspan of somewhere around 10 meters. So somewhere on the scale of a Quetzalcoatlus, which is a bit large.
0: Mm, those things are big. Yes. Yeah, they're pretty
5: huge. <laughs> That's well. like the
0: size of a uh, giraffe, isn't it?
5: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Easily. So... I did not do that. I think that's a good example of how big, high realism can be quite limiting. Either I would have to deal with a really enormous bird, which would kind of throw off a lot of things in how I write it, or else I would have to just uh, remove the prospect of flying via Pokemon, or just accept that I couldn't bring in that element of realism and just, you know, explain it away or let it just fly. I went with the third option there and just wrote the scene anyway. (laughs)
2: I'm I'm glad I've written this trainer flying on a Star Raptor too. And you had me doing mental math in my head, like, Oh, God, I don't. (laughs) That suspension disbelief, I was really counting on it there. But I think that's a really great example of, you know, not limiting yourself too much. It's okay. It is fiction writing, it is a fantasy world, no one is going to question it too hard. Giving yourself that permission to, you know, diverge a little bit from the hyper realism, I think is a really good point to make.
4: This is a perfect time to point out, in fact, that just to sober everyone up, the height of a Salamence in a Pokedex entry is only four feet. Eleven or something like that. I... What? <laughs> four feet eleven.
5: On that note, I'm pretty sure that Tyranitar <laughs> is like five ten, which is shorter than I am.
0: Yeah, we always imagine Pokemon as either bigger or smaller than what they should actually be. That is true. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't think these kids really have actually much of an idea when they're filling out these Pokedexes. <laughs> They just put down their best guess. They
5: don't really seem like reliable peer-reviewed sources, do they?
2: (laughs) No. I mean, we got kids saying things that are like a million degrees. (laughs) I actually like that idea that all of these Pokedex entries are just so weird and out there because 10-year-old children are the ones that we're relying on to gather this field data for us. (laughs) I like that. But which one did the Drifloon entry? It kidnaps
0: children.
4: <laughs> God, that was a terrible one. <laughs> he got kidnapped and then uh, wrote it over Wi-Fi.
0: <laughs> I got lost. Oh, it was a Drifloon's fault. <laughs> oh goodness! All right, shall we go on to our last question then?
5: Absolutely.
0: Okay, so have you seen any other interesting portrayals of Pokemon before, or are there any that you'd like to see in the future? Okay, Urb, you go first.
5: All right, so I'll take off. A- as you might have been able to gather by now, I have a deep fondness for realistic takes on Pokemon and just like bringing these real elements into stories in general. And I love seeing that, it, the effort that goes into it and how it can often make a world feel more real to me. And as, as far as stories that do that well, I think that Hozawatcha, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, did a good job of bringing some elements of that into Ghost in the Machine. I mean, just thinking about in terms of how the world works, the main character, Josie, is a Pokemon Undertaker. And the considerations given to how that part of the world works and little things like how a Bulldore having a ton of lichen growing on it is a skin condition are just a really cool addition to a fantastic story that I will finish. (laughs) I'm going to finish it sometime.
0: It's on your backlog. (laughs) Yeah. You've got to. It's incredible. (laughs) Yes. Is there anything that you would like to see in the future, though?
5: Yes. This is kind of a bit off from what we've been talking about, but I can think of nothing else. I would like to see see a take where you take all these big technological elements of the Pokemon world, you know, the healing machines, the PC system, Pokeballs in general, take all of that incredible technology and... Just make it all magic. Give me arcane contraptions and mystic rituals. Give me a world where Nurse Joy is a potion brewing witch, where Pokeballs are magical marvels, and where Professor Oak is the local wizard. I'm working on it. Give me time.
2: (laughs) 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 Well then, Aurea, would you like to go now? Yeah, Herb, I I loved your answer, and I love that you called out Ghost of the Machine, because I think it's a a really good example I mentioned earlier about how difficult it can be to portray inanimate objects or Pokemon that don't have an animal counterpart. And the Pokemon that Josie used in that fic really embodied that. And I think Kusa is someone who's done a really good job of nailing down how to do both fantasy with Pokemon speaking and acting as their own characters in Silver Linings and then realistic Pokemon in Ghost in the Machine she's incredible at that. I think her research really shows through. The other story that I wanted to bring up that I think has a really interesting portrayal of Pokemon is Agency by 13th. And for those that aren't from (laughs) Clock, I knew you would like that one. Agency is incredible because it's told from the point of view of the Pokemon that follow the trainer, and it's in second person perspective. So it's unique in that way. And it really involves you in the thought processes of these Pokemon who are they don't communicate with the trainer directly which you know there there are ways that that devolves in the story itself but they're very realistic and instinctual in the way that they perceive the world and how it influences their behavior The point of views are really distinct. You can always tell which Pokemon you are viewing the world from based on just the way that they interact with their environment and the way that they understand the events that don't necessarily involve them, but they do impact them. And so I think it's a really good example of getting into Pokemon's heads and understanding how they might work in that setting. Don't Fear the Reaper by Warbirday is another one that I think is really great. The Pokemon in that run are realistic, but what I really like about it, among a long laundry list of other reasons that make it great, is that the way ghost Pokemon specifically in this run are handled is phenomenal, which is great because, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper, it's kind of in the name that it would be dealing with death and a lot of heavier topics like that. But there's one character in particular that is a former human that's grappling with his own identity, and the disconnect between him and other ghost Pokemon that don't necessarily share that same background is really interesting to see in action. And I really want to see more than that to answer the second part of the question. I really want to see people dig into that disconnect between Pokemon and humans, even if there isn't a language barrier, even if the Pokemon can communicate. Because if Pokemon are capable of that higher level of comprehension and communication, what's keeping them in their Pokeballs? Why do they agree to that? It's interesting to see stories where Pokemon are more integrated into society and see what challenges and conflicts that presents. I think On the Run by Garish Garchomp is a good example of how Pokemon and humans intersect in Cyberpunk Lola, for example. And then I don't want to spoil anything in Tightrope because that's being read on the podcast, but Zapper Iphis has a really interesting take on bonds between Pokemon and humans and how that influences their communication as well. Sorry, I know that was a lot of title drops. I really think there's a lot of great examples on the forums, though. No, I, I really like that. wasn't able to touch on all of them.
4: We're all going to be title dropping in this segment. Don't worry about it. <laughs>
2: Uh, well,
0: just quickly for me, I know you've all mentioned cyberpunk stuff, but I really want to see it taken to more extremes because um, I know I've dabbled a bit in it before where um, trainers can actually modify their Pokemon. So actually, you know, if the Pokemon is a bit more of an aggressive type, they can actually make it more tame, you know, less dangerous, that sort of thing. But I really want to see people take that more to an extreme where Pokemon as data is played with. I like well, that. That's
5: some, that's some spicy
4: ethical questions. Yes. You're really making me want to pick silicon lines back up, man. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> <laughs> Shit.
0: Yes. Well, Clock, you want to continue then?
4: Yeah, exactly. Um. So, yeah, I have to thank you for going first on that one because I love that you've all mentioned Cyberpunk. And I've seen a lot of wild takes on Pokemon over the years. First, yes, I'm going to be turding Ghost in the Machine here. It's fantastic. But the one I really want to talk about here is it's not a written story, it's a nuzz comic. It's Camerion. It's probably my favorite nuzz comic ever. It speaks to the essence of what we're doing here, where, with fantasy and realism. We are abstracting the entire idea of Pokémon. Yes, there's a real Zubat in that story, sure, and it involves into a Golbat or a Crobat and so on, but sometimes a Geodude is just a rock, or a Machoke is a drawing of a Machoke, and you rip it in half and it's dead. Or a Porygon's a bunch of Lego blocks or something like that. That's just completely off the wall, it blew my mind. And as far as crazy takes go, I think actually, like what Rainey suggested, Cyberpunk and digitizing is just, it's actually middle of the pack crazy. Forget turning data, man. I've skipped the middle band before and I actually just made them data structures to start with. They were all data in the first place. Always has been. Now this is a fandom where Gajinka runs Strive. Post-apocalyptic runs Strive. Cyberpunk and high fantasy, they all intermingle and they've turned Pokémon into every which element of completely new worlds, not Unova or Sinnoh or Kalos or Galar. To bounce off Aurea, even, who already mentioned Warbur Day's Don't Fear the Reaper, I'm going to go in the complete opposite direction. Warbur Day also has two other fantastic runs on this topic of abstraction. First was the old American Pie.
5: Mm-hmm. God, I
4: love that. And more recently, War also started Knights of Sidonia. It's based on Kalos, but it's not even in Kalos. It's just backwater America. There's no Pokémon, just total abstraction of the whole concept. You've got to squint to see where they even came from. I really want to see people just do that. Just make us think about what the Pokémon are, what relationship we really have to them. Turn them into objects, turn them into something you have to find. Make us think about what we're really doing with these things. Are they tools? Are they objects? Are they our friends? If you abstract them down to that simple thing, Maybe we'll be able to come to a deeper understanding of that.
0: Hmm. I know I've seen some people toy with the idea of um Pokemon as weapons before mm-hmm. as well. So that's another another take someone can take. <laughs>
2: yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. Any more thoughts? No, I'm I'm glad that you brought up Knights of Sidonia as well. For that specifically because it is <laughs> there are some runs out there um, that's just the most recent example i can think of where you really do have to squint to see and i just you know it's not something that you see very often on the forums i don't think
4: no not at all it's just absolutely fantastic you all guys if you're not already reading these every run we've named go read them please <laughs> yes they're really good runs you'll see where we're all getting these crazy ideas i swear we're not just taking some crazy stuff <laughs> we're reading them
2: i speak for yourself <laughs> No, I'm kidding.
0: (laughs) All right. So how about we wrap things up? Everyone, would you like to say your outros? Once again, say what your runs are and give a goodbye. (laughs) Sure thing. So who would like to go first?
4: Ain't got to be me. (laughs) Well, all right.
5: This is Herb signing off. Feel free to check out my runs, All That We Are, and the new run, The Quiet Dark, which will be out by the time this episode airs. I swear it. I'm going to hold you to it. I cannot wait for it. And also I'm going to mention what I forgot to mention before, which is my screenshot run, Dust in the Wind, if you want to see me crush everything in the entire universe with the dust ox.
4: (laughs) (laughs) You'll love to see it. Okay, clock. All right. So if you love these hot takes, I promise you're going to love Season Child. If you want to see New York turned into Canada or just comfy nothing with no wars, no god dragons, just comfy, chill, rural life and Pokemon. And I guess complaining about... (laughs) favorite hockey team losing with your favorite Nive by your side, go check it out. Or you could also watch me do Caller of Heaven, where Rowan is an astrologer and Pokemon are going to ruin your fucking day, man. <laughs> but yeah, definitely check out some cool stuff. I'm not the only one who's got fantastic takes in the forum, but I guarantee you I've got the spiciest ones. Clock and Sign signing off.
2: <laughs> All right, Aurea. Hey guys, this is Aurea signing off. Thank you so much for having me. Again, I am the author of Impulse and Dandelion, so feel free to check those out. But before you do, I would really implore you to check out some of these runs that we were speaking about. If anything regarding realistic or fantasy Pokemon interests you, um, be sure to give them a check out too.
0: Awesome. Thanks for joining me, everyone. And we'll get back to our regularly scheduled podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Bye.
4: Bye.
0: Bye, everyone. See you all later. In our final segment for today, we return to Tightrope, where last time newcomer Ashling got to know her new friends and her first Pokemon. Today we catch up with them as their journey begins in earnest.
6: Tightrope by Zephyr Chapter 2 A Gift and a Curse to the Wilderness. Side by side, the resemblance between Grace and Ashling was much stronger, though contrast still existed. Grace was more compact in person than Zowanna remembered her, especially next to her daughter, who was a head taller and long of limb. But she was just as vivacious and quick to laugh as she'd always been on TV, and had a natural ease about her where Ashling felt high-strung even with the breezy exterior. They smiled the same, though, radiating enjoyment and just a hint of mischief. Shall we get going, then? It was kind of adorable how Ashling's accent got stronger around her mother. Yeah. Ashling gave Grace one last kiss goodbye before practically shoving Zawanna out of the front garden to stop their stream of polite farewells. Her chest waved frantically until they were around the corner out of sight. The rye horn bellowed after them. I always do, Raleigh, Ashling shouted back. The Fletchling circled them once and landed on Ashling's shoulder. They crossed the road Zoana so would have usually taken to Nuvatolt to head for the old route instead. It felt odd to walk instead of drive, but that was the tradition for trainers. I thought we'd never get out of there, said Ashling with a big sigh, but that was all for show. Zoana so wished she could be as genuinely appreciative of the smothering her own parents had poured over her earlier. Of course she had returned all of their I-love-you's, and gave them both the best hug she could muster, but all the while she had been thinking about how to slip out the door. And here was Ashling trying not to smile at the twittering bird on her shoulder. So, can you talk with your Fletchling? The trick is getting him to shut up. The Fletchling in question chipped angrily at that, and buffeted Ashling's ear with his wing. After Shinaj found us, we battled together for a while until the understanding set in. Same with Raleigh. That's how I got into training. That's really cool. Makes sense, too. I always thought it was sort of odd to live with Pokemon if you can't talk to them. didn't make sense to me, either. Something tapped Sawana's leg, and she stopped. Frobo looked up at her with his big yellow eyes and blinked. First one eye, then the other. Wanna come up? She offered. He silently inflated the bubbles above his nose once, and it seemed like that was all the answer she was going to receive. He'd barely made so much as a peep since she got him. Maybe he would talk more after the understanding activated. Or perhaps he was simply quiet by nature. She hefted him and held him in her arms. Ashling waited ahead of them on the footpath to Quaralee. Dozens of these ancient well-worn trails snaked across the region. Maintained to this day for trainers to journey along. This one was wide and sunny. Lined with raspberry bushes and stately old apricorn trees. Zwana used to come out here sometimes with her siblings to gather them. But not for some time, she realized. Not since Clamon moved out. Zoana skipped to catch up. So, my queen, did you ever ride like your mom? Oh Yeah. I was riding before I could sit up in the saddle. One of my main jobs on a range was breaking in the baby it was the Zoanna Zawana inferred from the exaggerated air quotes that this was an outdated term. It was more like breaking me with how often I got thrown. See, the calves have plenty of power in their charge right out of the shell, but they have to learn form and follow through, or you just get launched. She illustrated this by slapping her hands together and shooting one away from her. Wow, that seems dangerous. Eh, a bit, Ashling shrugged. It's not so bad if you wear the gear. The way she said it made Zoana think she hadn't always worn the gear. That's still pretty hardcore. Yeah, I was super into it as a kid and it's still fun, but it's not really me anymore. Zoana wasn't sure it was best to probe any further yet. I guess things come and go. I used to be really into architecture and interiors. Mega nerdy, I know. A little, Ashley acknowledged. She looked off into the distance, clearly thinking about something. So Zoana let her. Bree rounded ahead, chasing a leaf. Zoana adjusted Frobo in her arms, but there was no way to be comfortable anymore. Maybe she should work out more. Do you mind hopping for a bit, Frobo? My arms are getting tired. They were getting into town, and the Froakie looked down at the cobblestones with distaste. Instead of jumping down, he clambered up over her shoulders and installed himself like a backpack. She giggled. That works. Coralie was always a little sleepy right after school let out. The children had dispersed, and the tourists who came to see an authentic old callous town had yet to arrive. Most of the shops were closed for a week or two to take a break and outfit themselves for the next season. Frobel leaned over her shoulder a bit to get a better look at the fountain in the square, and the Breezel and Paramore playing in it, but stayed where he was. At this hour, most of the town's activity was centered around the cafe they'd met at yesterday, and they went in for a boost. Bruy bounced excitedly in front of the pastry case when she was given license to select her own treat from Pokemon-friendly offerings and Frobel used his tongue to indicate his choice before the chesspen had even begun to decide. Chinnage, meanwhile, eschewed the café's goods in favor of a sunflower oat cake from Ashling's pocket. Ashling took a coffee black and got a brioche for herself. She laughed as though on his hot chocolate and croissants, but people who thought those breakfast choices were reserved for children were wrong, and their souls were shriveled from self-imposed suffering. No one liked black coffee, not really. They were addicts, massachusetts, liars beyond all hope of redemption. Ashling was out the door before Zoana had her in stitches. The Pokemon were confused, but kept pace as Zoana hurried onward so as not to further annoy the grouchy patrons on the patio. Ashling shambled with Mirtha half-step behind her and shed a single tear, utterly defeated. You make a solid point, she said, when she no longer had to gasp for breath. Zoana's steps became bouncy enough to make Frobel finally jump ship, and probably not from the direct line of sugar and caffeine she had just ingested. They reached the footbridge on the far end of town, and Frobel climbed the railing to look down at his reflection in the glassy water. Flashes of white and orange and the occasional ripple of a horn breaching the surface spoke of Goldine swimming below. Frobel pointed them out to Brie, who fit her head through the bars to look and very nearly got stuck. Instead, she landed on her butt and endured something that sounded a lot like snickering from Chinage. The bridge ended in the hardened earth of the trail that led through Nuvotolt Forest. The dark mass of trees took up most of the horizon to the north, before the time being, the path ambled through tall grass and bushes. A brook that fed the river ran nearby, and its burbling mixed with the shuffling of the breeze. Frobel croaked to get her attention and pointed to the water. Should she let him swim? He did need to stay damp, but Shanach can watch him. Ashling reassured her. The fledgling and Frookie took off towards the water, and Bree stayed behind to guard Zawana and Ashling. A position she took seriously, judging by the way she scouted ahead and kept her ears up. There were plenty of wild Pokemon about, but none approached them. So they filled the time with conversation. Ashling was surprisingly easy to talk to. Not that Zawana ever had much trouble in that department. But she was fun, and Zawanna didn't have to work at it. It used to be that way with Serena, too. So, how long have you known Serena and the others? The mention of Serena's name made Zawana worry she'd shared that last thought aloud, but Ashling's tone was one of failed nonchalance, not prying at an unwitting admission. Zawana let herself feel just a little smug that she had correctly diagnosed anxiety as the motive for Ashling's cue. My mom and Serena's are friends, so we've known each other pretty much forever. Hanging around her mom's gym all the time is what got me interested in Pokemon. My parents don't care for them all that much. Not everyone can be so enlightened. She was quick with those light, playful jabs. We met Tracy and Tierney in Premier. They were already sort of joined at the hip, so when I started hanging out with Tierney because of dance, Tracy got pulled into the group. Do you still dance? No, Zoana sighed, but it was fun. Shrinage flew back to them, and Frobo emerged from the grass as they neared the trees. She started early, Ashling observed. She must be pretty good. Tierney's amazing. She won't tell you, but she can turn it up. I'll just have to lure it out of her then. It might be nice to have some help with Tierney. Tracy, too. Oh, right, Tracy. Um, take your time with her, Zoana cautioned. I will. She sounded sincere and well-meaning but the ease and rapidity of her assurance still gave Zawanna pause. She wondered if warning her further was wise, or if it would only make her more curious. Zawanna's inner debate was abruptly cut short by a sharp cry from Shinaj, who plummeted to the forest floor, wings bound by a thick webbing. Before they could ask if he was all right, he burned off the bindings with an ember and wheeled to face his assailant. It was a scatterbug, but creamy white rather than grey, and sparkling where the sunlight hit it. Her, by the short length of her ruff. A shiny. Samana could barely believe it. She'd never seen one in person before, not of any species. The scatterbug took one look at them all and flattened the feelers on the crown of her head. Shanaj sheeped angrily, and she shrank away from him, but the root at her back prevented further retreat. Get him, Shanaj Ashling jeered. There's power and excitement in her clenched fist, and a light in her eyes as bright as her prey's glitter. The scatterbug shot and missed as Shinaj slipped upward with one powerful downsweep. He landed on the scatterbug's back and delivered a sharp peck to her head. She wiggled weakly for a moment, unable to escape, and then prostrated herself in defeat. Sinaj only just dodged Ashling's ball. It barely moved before the telltale green flash confirmed the catch. Yes! Ashling cried and jumped to pick it up. This one's got fight in her. Good work, Shinage. The Fletchling gave her a little bow and twittered as he flew back to her shoulder. Ashling laughed and hitched the new ball to her belt. I can't believe you caught a shiny, they're so rare, Zoana stammered. And your first catch, too. She almost asked Ashling to let the Pokemon back out right then and there, but she supposed she wouldn't have to wait too long. Just lucky, I guess. She shrugged, but there was a knowing quality to her smile that drew Zoana in. Ashling cocked her head and turned that smile on Zoana. Why don't we find a first catch for you too, Marquise? It'll be a fun surprise for the rest of the crew. Yeah. Zoana, Ashling, and their trio of Pokemon spread out to search, ranging around the woods, but never wandering out of sight and hearing of one another. There were at least as many Pokemon here as there were in the fields, probably more, but Zawana only caught glimpses and snatches, further confused by the dappled light. She hadn't been under the canopy of Nuvitolt Forest in years, and it was good to be back. The smell of lichen dirt and rotting leaves brought back her outings with Serena. They had built little houses for the wild Pokemon, and climbed trees, and sent bark boats down the brook, all while her mother's masquerade hovered overhead. Frobel climbed up a tree to get a better vantage, and the Pidgey resting there scattered before Zawanna could challenge them. Was it always this difficult to find a wild Pokemon willing to battle? Marquise, Ashling called. I think I found one. Zawanna hopped a log in her haste and found that Ashling and Brie had pinned a teddy ursa against a berry bush. The Pokemon had purple stains around her mouth and on her paws from the meal they had interrupted, but didn't seem all that perturbed about being cornered. She looked from Ashling to Zawanna and chuffed. So cute, Zawanna whined. Catch her then, said Ashling in amusement. Right, Frobel, use pound. The froggy hopped forward and the teddy Ursa put up her juice-soaked mitts. Frobel lassoed one with his tongue and wrenched the teddy Ursa off her feet. He jumped on her head with both feet and Zawanna flinched. But the teddy Ursa threw him off and went after him with scratch. Zawana fretted for a moment about what he would do, before remembering that it was her job to direct him. Bubble, Frobel! The attack knocked the teddy ursa on her butt, and Zawana threw a ball. It rocked twice and was still. Nice catch, Marquise. Zawana clutched the ball tightly. Good job, Frobel. You did great. Frobel gave her a ribbit. I think this teddy ursa had the right idea, though. Let's have some lunch. They selected a small nearby clearing carpeted in flowers for their picnic, and leaned back against a mossy fallen trunk. Ursa picked more berries along the edge, and came back with an armful to share. Bree eagerly took her up on the offer, and Shinaj had some with the seeds Ashling brought for him. Froebel busied himself with a nest of termites in one end of the log, while the scatterbug nibbled a leaf on the other end, where the shade dulled her glimmer. Ashling and Zona gaped and worked their way through the cheese and charcuterie they brought along. What are you going to call your scatterbug? Dara, I think, Ashling answered between bites. It means fruitful in Gaelic. Tierney said Bree means power, going for an auspicious theme? It's tradition, Ashling said simply. What about you? What will you call your teddy ursa? Zawana had to think about that for a moment. She whistled, and the teddy ursa looked at her. How do you like Tessa? The teddy ursa cocked her head, and Shinaj tweeted something to her, perhaps a translation. She smiled and toddled over to climb into Zawana's lap, then set to licking her paws clean. Zawana scratched her between the ears, and she made a chortling purr in response. Tessa it is, then. Zawanna looked up to see Ashling, head in hand, and smiling at her. You're adorable. Me or the bear cub? Zawanna tried not to sound too invested in the answer. Both, said Ashling, after a moment's deliberation. You have a way with them, too. I don't know, said Zawanna, looking down at the fuzzy creature melting into her arms. I think this one might just be really tame. No, you've got the touch, right, Shanach He twittered. See? Zoana wanted to joke or argue that the Fletchling could be saying exactly the opposite, for all she knew. But something deeper wanted to just accept the compliment. The two urges battled for a quiet moment, and Ashling pounced on the pause. That was a great first catch. The insolence? How dare she say something so idiotic after her first catch had been a shiny... It's not like I told Frobel to pull that cool move with his tongue. I almost forgot to do anything at all. You were nervous, sure, but you kept your head. Most people don't until they've had some more practice, and I don't mean school. Doing all this stuff out in the wild is totally different. There's real stakes to it. I guess so. So Zoana expected it to stop there, for Ashling to be mollified by her acceptance. Instead, she tilted her head to catch Zoana's wandering gaze and pressed onward. You've got a natural connection, and that has a ton of potential. I think whatever you decide, you'll go far. All Zoana could must stare in response was a weak laugh as her heart threatened to beat right through her chest and sent her head spinning. Apparently, she was susceptible to flattery. That was... useful to know. Care to test that theory? Wait, what was she doing? Was she flirting back? Was Ashling flirting with her in the first place? That grin of hers seemed to suggest so, but maybe it was just a standard sort of playful? When did she get so close? Close enough that Zoana could smell her shampoo. Honey, pear, and myrrh. Was that a friendly lean? A relaxed arm across the log by her shoulder? Was she even gay? You want a battle? Ashling asked for clarification. Yeah, coughings and Voltorb. She blown it sky high, crushed that momentum right into a barrier not even a Rhyhorn could plow through. Wait, no. On second thought, the enthusiasm made for great cover. It'll be fun. Ashling got to her feet. One v one. Starter versus starter. You're on. Ashling offered her hand, and Zawanna almost forgot to move Tessa off her lap before accepting it. Zawanna swayed from the vertigo. Ashling touched her arm to steady her, but if anything, that made it worse. She had to get a grip. You ready for a battle, Froble? He riveted and hopped to her. Up and at, Umbree. It's our first official match. The Trespin hurried over as Ashling paced back to make room for the fight. Shinaj, make sure Dara watches. Shanaj tweeted at the scatterbug, and she nearly jumped out of her skin. But she put the rest of her leaf down and turned to watch. Frobo gathered his hind legs under him, and Bree lowered herself in preparation. Pound, Frobo. Someone move, please. Vine whip Bree, snag one of his legs. Frobo was shockingly fast, too fast for Bree but she received the kick to her jaw like a pro boxer and lashed out with a vine from her wrist. Get out of there! But Froebel was well ahead of her and already leaving back. Zawana never saw the opening, but Bree didn't miss it. She lassoed at right leg, causing him to fall. With a high cry, she grabbed her vine in both paws, tossed Frobel over her head, and smashed him into the ground on the other side of her. Froebel! Incredibly, he got up and took the only avenue left. Straight at his opponent. Block! was all Ashling had time to get out before they collided. Brie got her arms up in time for Frobel to backflip off them. She staggered but found her feet before the next kick and ducked. Swing him! Brie grabbed her vine again, swung Frobel around like she was competing in the hammer throw, and flung him back at Zowana He landed heavily in front of her and rolled onto his face. Frobel? He gave her the thumbs up, but stayed down. She let out the breath she was holding. We give, she called to Ashling. Bree turned back to her trainer for approval. You did great, said Ashling, crouching down to her Pokemon's level. Bring it in. They bumped fists, and Bree wiggled her claws with Ashling this time, looking fit to burst all the while. Zwana nearly tripped over her messenger bag and snatched it up to fish out a potion and spray bottle. Fobo had peeled himself off the ground in the meantime, and she sprayed him down with water first, so that he was clean and damp before she applied the potion. Ashling had a cloth for Brie and tended her outstretched paws, which looked a bit raw from the vine. You two were awesome, she declared enthusiastically. It took Zoana a moment to process that Ashling was looking right at her. Hey, I'm supposed to say that, you won. Only because we stole Frobel's sick move, though. That's true. She had to accept that one, for her starter's sake. Bree can really take a hit. Chespins are tough nuts to crack. I can't believe Frobel got up after that first slam. Me neither. All it took was your voice calling him. Ashling squared up to her, leaned in, and tilted her head down to meet Zoana's eyes. To make sure she was paying attention and wouldn't lick away. See, now that's what I was saying before. You've had him for 24 hours, and you've already got a bond. That's something else. Zoana blinked and tried to swallow, but her mouth was too dry. Thanks, she forced out. And it felt good. It felt really good. I wish I had your instincts. That's practice. You'll get there. Zawana looked down, and Frobel smiled up at her. Thank you for the match, by the way. Ashling extended her hand. Zawana took it. You're welcome. We should do it again sometime. The contact lingered, noticeably so. Zawana checked for any sign that Ashling wanted to let go and found none. I meant to ask yesterday, but where did you get that lipstick you're wearing? It's an A.C. Why? Did you want to try it? Okay, that was innuendo. There is no way she meant that innocently, not when she said it like that, like she was offering Zoana another bite of her mother's smoked gray hair. What should she do now? Should she escalate it? Was that a good idea? They were sort of like co-workers, weren't they? If something went wrong, it would make trouble for everyone. On the other hand, Ashling was gorgeous, and Zawanna never had an opportunity like this before. Shinaj cheeped, and Ashling let go of her hand, laughing at whatever he said. Without Ashling's eyes and touch muddling Zawanna's brain, she realized that was probably for the best. The hills east of Nuvatolt were bright and lush in the heat of the afternoon. The river was narrower here, and rushed through rapids down below them. There wasn't much out this way, and Ashling reminded herself to savor the waving grass and open sky, drink her fill of the calm and quiet. Soon her life would become all grey stone, bustle, and hum. Unsurprisingly, Serena had been very eager to set out this morning, after Ashling and Zawana had shown up to dinner last night with new Pokemon. Now she was nowhere in sight having long since struck out on her own. Tierney and Tracy were still nearby on the next rise, with Valerian striding beside them, looking for specimens to log. Between Tracy's strawberry blonde bob and Tierney's stark patchwork vitiligo, they were easy to keep track of. Ashling should have been watching her Pokemon, but her eyes kept wandering to wherever Zoana was. Once again, it was worth the glance. Zoana hopped up and down with glee as one of her Pokemon took down yet another opponent. Ashling loved the bounce of those girlish tails, while every twist was its own spring, storing and releasing that boundless energy of hers. She looked almost unbearably soft and warm in the pinking light, and Ashling resolved to make some excuse to swagger over to her. Hey, Ashling! Shannad swooped around her, snapping her back to the reason she was actually out here. Her new Azrael had bounced a ways ahead, and she shielded her eyes to better make out the sandy shape she was confronting. The Pokemon was flat with a pointed tail and turquoise stripes. Dunsparce! Good work, Emir! Shinaj alighted on her shoulder, his job done, and Bree emerged from the grass to see what the fuss was about. Careful, they're flighty! The Azura hopped off her tail and crept closer. The Dunsparce looked from her to Ashling and charged, round eyes glowing red. Emir went sailing right over her tail and landed at Ashling's feet. Dara ducked behind Ashling's leg. Not this one, Ashling muttered. Excellent. Aisling, use tail whip. The little Azeroth jumped clear of the Dunsparce's next charge and smacked it with the buoyant orb on the end of her tail. The blow had little effect, which made Aisling take a nervous step back, but Ashling saw the telltale shimmer of the Dunsparce's magic defenses being ripped away. Again, Aisling. The Azeroth did as she was told, but the gamble couldn't hold out forever, and the Dunsparce's next strike hit home. Amir was briefly airborne before disappearing into the tall grass. Shinaj took off after her, so Ashling turned to her starter, Bree. You're up. The Chespin planted herself in front of Ashling, cracking her knuckles. Vine whip. The Dunsparce's glowing eyes blurred with the speed of its charge. But Bree smacked it aside with a vine. It whirled on her, but she repeated the maneuver and then grabbed its tail with another vine and flipped it. Bree pounced on its exposed belly, but didn't need to. The light of rage was fading from its eyes. Nice work! Bree stepped off and the Dunsparce ratted itself in time to see Ashling's ball. Its fin-like wings flared before being swallowed by red light. The Dunsparce did not break out, and Bree handed the ball up. mare wobbled back out of the grass as Ashling perused the catch info in her holocaster. You did good too, newbie. Come get a potion. Amir didn't seem to understand exactly what that meant. So Ashling gave Bree a small spritz first. The Trespen leaned in and shook, making a show of how nice it was. Then beckoned the Azurel over. Ashling clicked the Dunsparce's ball and let her out first. She scooted closer and fluttered her wings, letting out a stuttering hiss. It was difficult to read the serpentine creature's expression, but she seemed happy enough. And Bree chittered warmly back. A shadow passed over as Ashling finished spraying them down. It was Zawana smiling shyly down at her. Ashling hadn't found anything conclusive as yet, but she had a feeling, and her instincts were really wrong. How do you like Gobon? she said, gesturing to her latest catch. The Dunspar spun a circle. So cute though not as cute as this little Azuril, she said, snatching up the Pokemon and snuggling her. Emir let out a purring chirrup and rubbed her cheek against Sawana's. Ashling couldn't be sure of what she was saying so she decided to fill in the gap. Are you sure you ain't talking about your... The Pokedex says Dunsparce are quite rare. Ashling wanted to be annoyed at Tracy for messing up her line, but this was the first time she had said anything without being prompted, so she let it slide. Does it now? I've seen a few before, but they are elusive. Nice catch, my queen, said Tierney. Dunsparce are supposed to be lucky, aren't they? Very lucky. I suppose so. I caught a Riolu. The Pokemon stepped around her legs to greet them. Gonna name him Leog, And a fine name it is. Ashling was a bit surprised one would appear to Tierney, but she still had a lot to learn about her new friends. I caught a Fletchling. Serena was back. Should be helpful for the first gym. Ashling cast upward first, but the in question emerged from the grass behind Serena's Finnegan. Wait, are all of these yours? Serena asked tracing a circle around Ashling's team with the swirl of her finger. I've been busy. You didn't tell me your scatterbug was shiny, she shrilled, pointing and covering her gaping mouth. I've been lucky. Serena blinked several times, and looked on the verge of demanding an explanation Ashling wasn't going to give. Instead, she said, battle me. In the time it took that to register, Serena corrected herself. Why don't we have a battle? We haven't had any proper matches yet. Marquise and I battled yesterday, but sure. 2v2? Ending with the question made it tough for Serena to go back to the first item, though her eyebrows were clearly signaling her desire to do so. Yes, of course. She gave her head a little shake and paced across the open space to make room for the battle. Justine? She pointed, and her fledgling hopped nervously forward while her finikin sat primly by her side. Shanach peered suspiciously at the fledgling from his perch in a nearby bush. But said nothing. Want another go, Emer? Zawana reluctantly put the Azuril back down. She bounced forward on her tail and bobbed up and down while she waited. Serena gave Ashling a sharp look, probably attempt to discern if she was being dumb or arrogant. And Ashling made an after you gesture, tackle. The intensity that was always simmering beneath Serena's surface flared to life. Ashling couldn't help but smile as she ordered Emer to meet it. The Azura's water gun went wide as Serena's fleshling dashed to the side and scratched the mirror with her claws. Maybe she wasn't ready to win her own battles just yet, but she could make them easier for her teammates. Ashling had her change tack and go for Tail Whip instead. This time, she hit her opponent right in the... nose? Yes, a small black nose attached to a dark-furred Pokemon with a short, bushy tail and reddish paws. Ashling looked to Serena for an explanation. But she seemed equally confused, if not more so. Zora Tracy exclaimed, "They've only been reported in the deepest parts of the winding woods, though I guess that illusion ability would make them difficult to catalog." The Zora glanced nervously back at Serena Spinakian, almost hiding behind her own tail. Felicity's ears were pinned back, and her bottle bottlebrush tail stood on end. But she looked up to her trainer. "Oh," she said smartly, it "seems I caught a Zora." Cool. That wasn't much smarter, but whatever. Are we gonna finish this battle? Yes. Justine, use- use your Dark-Type attack. Not bad for being flustered. Zora seemed almost as shocked to be asked to continue, but leapt back in with enthusiasm. The Dark-Type move in question happened to be faint Attack, which meant that Ymir didn't stand a chance. Justine disappeared in a puff of Dark Mist, and reappeared beside her as she struck. Ymir scurried back to Zawanna's waiting arms. Ashling sent in her chestpin without a moment's hesitation and had Bree cover her more vulnerable underside to receive the next attack, before trussing up the tricky little creature with fine whip until she gave. Felicity was not as easily ensnared and forced Bree back with Ember. The fire was lovely, to be sure, but Ashling had to douse it. Serena sustained her second shock of the battle when Bree sprouted rocks over her body and went for felicity like a boulder coming down a mountain. The little fox went tumbling and staggered to her feet, only to be struck out as Bree came back around. It was all over Serena's face. She had never lost before. Ashling was only too happy to give her that sorely needed experience. Zoana's eyes had blown wide, and Ymir hopped back out of her arms to congratulate her teammate. Tierney and Tracy looked rather shocked as well. At least they all knew now. That was one hell of a ride, no? Serena blinked up at her, holding her bruised finikin in her arms. Thanks for the battle, Comtesse. Of course, was all she could muster. We've got to work on that roll-up, Bree. I think you can turn tighter than that. Bree nodded seriously, dusting the remaining rubble off her arms. That was some battle, said Tierney. You were both so great, Zoana jumped in. Ashling accepted the compliments, but Serena was still too far away. She kneeled and looked over her two battered Pokemon as she sprayed them down with a potion. Maybe we should train for a while longer before we challenge the gym, she told them. Completely destroyed. If Ashling could have given herself a high five, she would have.
0: Ashlyn manages the best Serena, but a rematch sometime in the future is all but certain. We'll check in with the group again in our next episode. As always, we'd like to thank our readers, Radoff, Siley, and Silverdough, our editors CJ Apples and Song With No Soul, our producer Flop and the rest of the Rider's Lock crew for bringing this project to life. And of course, thanks to Rosella Queen for our theme music, Made for arranging our jingles and Nazimba for the wonderful cover art. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Rider's Lock. Stay safe, everyone.